So uh, last week we began the book of Daniel. This is a, a journey we're on until uh, October, I believe. Uh, we, we are excited to look into the Old Testament. We don't do this often enough. Um, the whole Bible is the Word of God. Altogether, it proclaims His, His glory and it, it speaks of this salvation story. And it's necessary for us to understand the Old Testament um, just as much as it is the New Testament. And, and it's necessary for us to see how they are very much tied together. This is one book, the Word of God. And, and so we want to intentionally look at books of the Old Testament just as we do the New. Although we are a New Testament church in every way, we will see how this has always been the plan of God. And, and these things that sound so foreign and so distant very much apply to who we are and where we are today. And, and they speak of the same God. And so I'm excited to get into this book starting today. Last week was... The introduction. Uh, this week is chapter one. We're going to read the entire chapter every week. So if you are the kind of person that finds yourself distracted easily when long readings are done, uh, find some way to focus yourself. Read along with us. Uh, think on these words. Let let us dwell in our in our hearts as we read through it. Let us remember what we're reading. It's not just words, but these are the words of the Most High God. These are words that give life. That stir up in us something new. Uh, this gives us faith. This makes us new creations. This is life in word form. And so, uh, as we read through it, see that it's a story. See it for what it is. And in fact, Daniel 1, uh, even though last week was the introduction, as most books have introductions of their own, Daniel 1 serves as that. It's introducing us to this culture. It's introducing us to uh, the state of the, the Israelites. It's showing us what's going on uh, in the context. And so last week we talked a lot about um, uh, kind of literal context. We, we talked a lot about uh, what exactly is going on in the way the book is set up and how it's connected and the complexities of all of that and how it's beautiful and significant. This week we're going to focus more on historical context, but we're also going to get into meeting these characters and seeing who exactly this story is about. And of course, ultimately, it's about Christ. And so we're going to see that. Um, so let's, let's allow the text to speak for itself. Let's go into Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. <clears throat> then the king, sorry, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. 
and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your your food and your drink. For why should he see that, that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward from the... Or whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servant for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skills in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray. Father, I praise You for this chapter of Scripture. Though when it was originally written in a different time to a different people, You knew it would be for us here today. And it would have meaning beyond a story to tell. So I pray that You would speak clearly to us in this time, that we would be encouraged, that we would be equipped, that we would see how this connects to the mission ahead of us to make disciples, to bring glory to You, and to live this life not as who we used to be, but as new creations in Christ, and sojourners to this land, to the glory of our King. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we see here in this first verse, uh, this is, gives us immediately the time. So this is uh, the, the, the reign of Jehoiakim, the third year. So this is around 605 B.C. So in 2 Kings 24, it tells us Nebuchadnezzar took captive the people of God. And he brought them into Babylon. Not just any people, but he chose the best among them and left the rest. And they, had their, they continued on with their evil kings as they had been doing. Uh, but the, the best of the Israelites, the best of Judah in particular, went into Babylon, into exile. And so it's important that we see this is a God-ordained exile. These are the people of God still in the the sovereign grace and control of God going into exile with an evil king. And in chapter 10 of Daniel, we see when this kind of comes to an end. This is the third year of Cyrus, also mentioned in chapter 1. So this is around 537 B.C. Remember, in B.C. we count backwards. So this is about 70 years of life for Daniel. Seventy years is what was promised of exile by God 
to, to the prophet Jeremiah. And so the people of God are a people with no home, fighting to put their hope in a king that they don't yet see, a savior that's supposed to come while living in exile. This is a miserable 70 years. This, this not sure of it, the hope that they're supposed to have in a land that's not their own. It doesn't feel like home. They're with their people, but their people are all separated all over the world, spread out in exile. They're not in Jerusalem, and they're desperate for a Savior, but they don't yet see Him. They don't yet know exactly how He's going to come. So they're displaced and occupied rule for a long period of time, for many of them, their entire lives. And God has shown Himself to be faithful always, and He will continue to do so, but it may not look that way right now when they're in shackles headed to Babylon. So we, we know this is going to last for a while, but as we work through understanding how the Old Testament is laid out, we can see more clearly what exactly God has been doing all along. So I know that a couple of, a couple of uh, generations ago, for some reason, we just stopped reading the Old Testament. Uh, we figured it doesn't really apply. Uh, and so there's a lot that we don't really know. We know there's stories in there. We, we can isolate some stories. We can kind of see... Okay, God was God then. He seemed kind of mean and uptight all the time, making threats. And we think, it's, think of it like it's a different God. He's given all these laws you had to follow. But it's, it's not the case. Our God is gracious. Our God is faithful. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. So it's important that we take some time to reflect on the history of Israel. To, to see exactly what this God was doing before we get to what He's doing here in Daniel. So I'm going to offer a brief summary of the Old Testament. All right, I would love this if I were in your seat, so I hope that you love it. So, God made Adam and Eve, right? We know that part. That was first. We know that comes first. So God made Adam and Eve. And from then they were exiled from Eden for their sin against God and, and then sin into the hearts of men and it was going to be bad for a long time. And so we see this played out over time. Um, even some good men like Abraham who came along and is still in the book of Genesis. And, and Abraham uh, made some bad decisions along the way, but God gave him the gift of Isaac. And, and we're not going to go into every detail of these stories, so you're going to have to go back and read up on your own. But follow the storyline because Old Testament's not laid out chronologically and, and the prophets refer back to some things. And so I just want to Give us a clear picture of what's going on. So from Isaac, we get Jacob. And Jacob is Israel. So Jacob has many sons, and they are the tribes of Israel. And one son in particular, Joseph, had sons, and so they're half-tribes. It's a little confusing. We're not going to go into it. But Joseph was a favorite son. And Joseph was the one who had the technicolor coat. Right? He, his brothers were jealous of his coat, and so they sold him into slavery. He goes into Egypt. And so now Joseph, much like Daniel in Babylon, earns some favor, and he's He's liked by the Egyptian rulers. And so he becomes a high-ranking official in Egypt. And famine strikes the land. The tribes come. And there's mystery. Who is this guy? Ends up being, oh, it's our brother. So Israel comes to Egypt. And for years, they live in Egypt. And they're doing well. Until too many years pass by. And they no longer know who these people are. Pharaoh's getting a little insecure because the Hebrew population's growing. And he wants to get some things done. So he enslaves the Hebrews. And they're in slavery for a very long time until God raises up a deliverer among the Egyptians, but from the Hebrew people, Moses. And so Moses leads the people out of Egypt. Um, series of events. God shows his power. They enter into the wilderness. There is a promised land, but they're not getting there anytime soon. They, there's a lot of grumbling, a lot of complaining. 
a lot of idol worship. Moses gets frustrated several times. And Moses has his own failures and gives in to the pressures occasionally. And so Moses doesn't actually get to lead the people into the promised land. Instead, Joshua does. And Joshua fights a lot of battles and they conquer a lot of land and, and they feel like they're starting to be back on top. And then they start thinking, we really need a king. So they're, they're still doing a lot of horrible things. In fact, God sends several judges in, the, in this period of time uh, to correct these things. Uh, still worshiping idols. And they think the solution is going to be, okay, we need an earthly king. And so they demand a king. God gives them Saul. And Saul is an epic failure in many ways. Major letdown for the people. Not a great king. David comes along. And David is a man after God's own heart. David is faithful. Alright, so all along, God has made this covenant with His people. Starting with Abraham. Really starting with Adam. But made a covenant with these, these, His people. And, and time and again, they've broken the covenant. But David comes along and he desires to be faithful to this covenant. So he's a flawed man and he fails in many ways. But for the most part, he remains Faithful And God blesses the people. And David's a good king for the most part. He makes some bad decisions along the way. And, and it leads to a lot of problems in his life. Especially with his sons. But then Solomon, uh, son of David, becomes the king that takes his place. Um, and Solomon starts off good. He seeks wisdom. Uh, he, he is a wise man. Known as the wisest man. He has wealth and the blessings of his father David. And, and continues to grow that. And until things start going badly he enslaves people because he wants to build this awesome temple uh, that he designs and, and he, he marries a bunch of wives of foreigners because he's trying to build political relationships and other reasons he's a lustful man um, and, and these wives turn his heart to other gods and so he introduces idols to the people of God and they start worshiping these idols once again and, and they never truly stopped our, our hearts continue to long for earthly things to fill this void in us. And so God, God, again, a loving Father, brings about this discipline. Alright, so this discipline looks very bad for the people. The kingdoms split. We have Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And so north side got, gets themselves some kings. They got about 20 kings. All of them are evil guys, worshiping idols, leading the people astray. God sends prophets like Elijah and Elisha. Uh, to proclaim what's true, to bring the people back to what's true. He's never, he never stops coming after His people, even though our, their hearts are wicked. Southside doesn't do much better. Um, we have about 20 kings on the south side too, in southern Judah, and, and they have about 8 of the 20 that are actually good. And one of those is, uh, one of the final good king um, is my nephew's name. No relation though. Just happens. I mean, we've not traced back, so maybe connected, but it's not. Josiah, maybe you've heard his name. Josiah is, Elijah's also my nephew, in case they're listening. Shout out to him, too. Uh, so Josiah is, a, is somewhat of a good king, and he's leading the people. He's begging them to repent in Judah, like worship our God alone. And he, along with the help of Jeremiah, who's prophesying, like, if you don't do this, you're going to be overtaken. Now, the north has already been overtaken by the Assyrians. Again, still the grace of God to, to allow the evil ones to overtake. But the south will be overtaken by the Babylonians. And they don't repent despite the prophecies. And as Jeremiah proclaims, Babylon comes and Babylon overtakes the south and enslaves only the good ones led by Nebuchadnezzar, who is not yet king, but very soon to be king. So 
This is the third year of Jehoiakim, who comes right after Josiah, and the, the first year of Nebuchadnezzar. And here we are in Daniel. All right. You feeling it? All right. So we have this covenant with God and His people. They have broken the covenant time and again. God has been faithful to pursue them and discipline them as a loving father should. And a part of this discipline is sending them into exile. It would be fair for God to abandon Israel. It would be a justifiable divorce, if you will, for God to just separate himself from Israel because they have time and again turned from him and worshiped other gods. But God is faithful always. Hosea is a great picture of this. This is a prophet to the northern kingdom, but still this picture of God pursuing His bride no matter how many times she turns from Him. And God intends to do all of this to emphasize His grace, His compassion, His faithfulness. There's nothing these people have to offer. There's nothing in them that says, i got to have them. I really want to go after them. i got to have them for myself. It's only the love and compassion that's in the Godhead. Three in one. Right? This love And it's not egocentric because He is the epitome. There's nothing greater. His desire for His people to only delight in Himself is for the good of the people and to the glory of God. And so even in exile, God desires to make much of Himself for the good of His people. His love is greater and better than anything they will find in this world. And He's desperate for them to see that. And His covenant He's made with them is unbreakable. Not because of His people, but because of Him. Now, it's evident throughout the Old Testament that God is for His people for His own name's sake. But even as we get into Daniel, we'll see this theme laced throughout. Though it's easy to exalt these people because they do a lot of good, we have to continue to return to exalting God because that's the purpose of it all. Even if we desire uh, to make much of ourselves here and now as what the Crossing Church is doing for, for Monroe, how we would benefit the people. We need to bring it back to humbling ourselves and seeing our gracious Father who's at work. We're sinners. We're wicked. We turn from Him. But He's at work and He's graciously using us to bless this city and to make much of Him. And part of the evidence here in chapter 1, we see who who exactly this is about. In verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. In verse 9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. In verse 17, For these four, Daniel and his three friends, God gave them learning and skills in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So who is this about? Who is in control? God. He's the one that's given them up. He's the one that's given them gifts. He's the one that's equipped them and given them favor in the sight of the rulers of Babylon. God has not turned from His people. He never has turned from His people and He never will. He's not sitting back watching it play out because they're being punished in some way. He's active in the discipline because discipline is an act of love and this this God is a loving God. And so King Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's in control. He thinks he's running the show. He's calling the shots. He's getting what he wants. Little does he know he is in fact a servant of the Most High God, as Jeremiah tells us. And, and Jeremiah writes a lot about this time because he's still in Israel, but he is a, a prophet to the people of God. So he's writing them. And we learn this in Jeremiah 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter of, that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders in the exiles. 
and to the priests and the prophets and all the people, specifically whom Nebuchadnezzar has taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So we know God has a plan for his people despite the plans of these earthly kings, despite the plan of Nebuchadnezzar. But what exactly is Nebuchadnezzar's plan? So getting into the context of this, going into Babylon, we're there, we understand this culture is vastly different, but let's be in Babylon. You might have heard a lot of Babylon. It's written about in the Old Testament, it's written about in history. Babylon's a great city known by many. King Nebuchadnezzar's desire as a king before him is not like Pharaoh. It's not, I'm going to enslave these people and, and build my kingdom. It's, it's I'm going to take these people ca- captive and assimilate them into my culture. They're going to live life my way. They're going to be who I say they are. And we're going to build a great kingdom through assimilation. Not necessarily through slavery. So it's a little bit different. But it's a slavery nevertheless. Because these people aren't Babylonian. This isn't their home. This isn't their culture. But he desires to force them into it. But he does so in a seductive way. He's not intending to beat them into submission. Though that certainly happened. He's intending to seduce them into submission. And that's why he finds the best of the best already. It says, verse 3 and 4, the royal family of the nobility, the youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, and endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning, competent to stand in the king's palace. He wants to look good. He wants to feel good. He wants to add to the vain glory of Babylon. And so he's offering them world-class education. The University of Babylon. He's giving them the best food in the land. His own food. The stuff he eats and drinks. He's allowing them to experience a cultural experience that seduces them into wanting to be a Chaldean. He wants them to to desire what he desires. He wants them to like what he likes. He wants to rule their hearts and their affections, not just their bodies. And these four Jewish teenagers have the wisdom to know in the midst of all of this, they must maintain their integrity. They must maintain their identity. They can't lose it. And so chapter 1 gives us a picture of what exactly it looks like for, for people of faith to maintain right identity in a culture that would demand we conform. So let's look at how they're attacked. Their identity specifically is attacked. In verse 7, we see they're given new names. He gave... The chief unit gave the name, gave names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. And it's not like uh, the Chaldeans just needed easier names to pronounce. So when I go into foreign countries, people have a hard time saying Kendrick. It's a very American name. It's an English name. It's hard to say Kendrick. So in Mexico, they don't want to say it. In Germany, they don't want to say it. In Africa, they don't want to say it. I like my name, but give me whatever name you can say. And so that's often what happens. Ken is what happens. Ken, this is Ken. Whatever. Reminds me of Barbie, so I don't want to be Ken. But for you, I'll do that. But it's not like the Chaldeans just had a hard time saying these names. This was a part of enslaving them. It's stripping them of their identity. It's similar to American history. When the African slave trade happened... They brought these Africans to America and they forced them to take on slave names. This this graphic 
picture of this in, in the movie Roots. If you've read the book or seen the movie Roots, he take, they take Kutakite and they tie him up and they're whipping him. And the slave master says, I want to hear you say it. Your name is Toby. Let me hear you say it. And he says, my name is Kutakinte. And they beat him. And they beat him until he's beat into submission. And he finally gives in, crushed under this, to say, my name is Toby. Only this picture here in Babylon isn't just take on the name we demand you take on. It's... It's an attack to their faith because their names are meaningful in the Hebrew culture. Anytime you see a name that includes El, E-L, it speaks of Elohim. This is of God. Anytime you see a name that includes Ah, A-H, it speaks of Yahweh. So these names are meaningful. Daniel's name means God is my judge by no coincidence given their circumstance. God is my judge. Hananiah, his name means Yahweh is gracious by no coincidence. Mishael's name means who is like our God or who is what God is. Azariah's name means Yahweh is our helper. These names are not just meaningful to them. They point to the one true God and they would have them change to names that directly oppose this and worship and point to the gods of Babylon. In particular, Daniel's name is a prayer. Belshazzar is a prayer, not just to the God, but to the God, Bel, B-E-L's wife. A prayer that she would protect the king, Nebuchadnezzar. This is an affront to their identity. And Daniel continues to write the the Hebrew names that they've been given in this chapter. But in chapter 3, he refers to them in their Babylonian names. And in here, in this chapter 1, we don't see any resistance necessarily to their names being changed. They also seem okay with education, the Chaldean way. Now, Babylon is the nation. Chaldean is the culture. It's, it's the uh, ethno- ethnicity, okay? The, the Chaldeans is, is who they are in the nation of Babylon. And so they're teaching them this culture, teaching them this way of life. Be like us in our ethnicity, in our understanding. Take on our worldview. And we see in this, in this section that they teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans for three years. So it really is like, like university or, or like a foreign exchange student in middle school. So imagine you're, you're, you're from your land. You're, you speak your tongue. You understand things the way you understand things. And you come to America and go into middle school. So not only are you having to learn the, the way Americans teach, but you have to learn the culture of Americans to understand how they're teaching, what they're teaching, the language of Americans to understand what's going on. This is how they're being taught. And this is, this is the leading nation. So they're being taught well. They're being taught the, the best that is, there is to offer. And there's not any real resistance to that either. It's, it's interesting because in America, we don't value names all that much. They're, they might point to a family member in honor of them or, or just whoever's most creative, hipsters, you know. I'm going to name my kid. I was going to come up with something. Titus. We'll just say Titus. He's a biblical name, but I don't want to make fun of anyone else. All right. So we come up with these creative names, trying to stand out with who's got the best name. Kids get made fun of for it, but whatever. And so names aren't that big of a deal for our culture, but education is. We're not that great at it when you compare it to the rest of the world, but it matters to us. Like even, even especially in the church, do we go homeschool option? private school option, public school option. 
We want our kids to be educated really well. We want them to not be influenced too much by the culture. We want to be the ones to teach them so that we're not, we know they're not being taught lies. You, there are different camps, different reasons. I'm very grateful that the Crossing Church doesn't bolster any of these. We can't emphasize enough. Diversity is good. I think it's awesome that uh, the three families that came together originally to form the Crossing Church are in different camps on this. The Hawthorns Homeschool, the Bonners Private School, and right now, or at the time, Banks didn't know what we were doing. Right now, it looks like Titus is going to go to public school. It looks like he's going to go to Jack Hayes. We're spending so much time investing and in getting to know them. And we're, we're there all the time. It'd kind of be a slap in the face if we said our kid's not going not gonna to go there. Still praying about considering this. And, and we're not going to say public school's the way to go. I, think, I really think it's going to be, and we might do all three like the McClung's. They tried it all. But right now, we're not sure. We've got a few years to figure that out. But I think it's beautiful that we can have that diversity and a different way of thinking. And, and let me tell you, if Titus does go to public school, I'm going to be concerned about some things. About how he's influenced mostly by his peers. What they're telling him to do. What, what they're doing with him at the playground. Or lack of supervision or whatever it might be. I have concerns, but I'm not concerned about what he'll be taught by the system. Because hopefully I'll be a loving father who has many conversations and walks through these things with them. Even going in at five years old, he would have a foundation of, of right thinking. And, and our family would rally around him as the church and, and provide a right biblical mindset to take these things in, to process this information. And our children won't be compromised by the philosophies of the world because of a faithful father in heaven. Hopefully. But I, I know that's the case for Daniel and these his boys here. They're not concerned about the schooling because they, they've been raised in a culture by a good king. Josiah was with them. They've been raised in a, in a culture that apparently they're the best of. And they've been raised with an understanding like they're young still, they're teenagers, but these are grown men in that culture. They, they make their own decisions. They have strong integrity. And so they're sure about what they know about the Word of God. They're sure about what they know about God Most High. And they're not concerned about being compromised by what they're taught because all of that's going to be filtered through what they already know is true. However, he's not, he's not concerned about the name change. He doesn't seem to be concerned about the education. However, he's resolved that he will not defile himself by eating the food or drinking the wine. Without diving into unhelpful speculations about why exactly he's deciding to resist this, we know that this, this food, Babylon's not kosher, so we know this food doesn't fit the Jewish laws on food. It doesn't go into the right code. And we, we know this is probably also food that's been offered up to idols. So, so it's coming to them after that pagan worship. And so there's, there's these different reasons. Different people think different things. Um, but some of them contradict and some of them cross over. Uh, and, and there's not a lot we can do with that. But what we can see clearly is that Daniel is resolved to not let himself be defiled by it. So primarily, the Jewish food codes were not given for health benefits. Even though in this chapter it seems like that's what happens. It benefits his health. Primarily, they're given for separation purposes. You're not a part of this land. You don't, you're not like those people. I've heard it said that the most corrupt thing about any society is not their philosophy, but their lifestyle. And it seems that eating this food and drinking this wine is a lifestyle decision. 
It doesn't necessarily... It doesn't necessarily affect what exactly he's putting into his mouth, though there are laws that, as a Hebrew, he's going to follow. It's more about making himself distinct from his people. The name change, education, we can filter through that. But I will not be defiled by turning against my God in these explicit laws, by worshiping idols. I will not be defiled. He's resolved. And he rejects the lifestyle. And in verse 10, we see it goes on. <clears throat> verse 8, verse 10, we see it goes on that he, he's been given favor with Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch. That's a cool name, hipsters. Ashpenaz. <laughs> and, and they have a relationship, it seems, that they're able to have a conversation about this. And he's like, look, Daniel, I want to help you, but this is my head we're talking about. I could die for this. So it, it, it seems that Daniel could just say, okay... We eat a little bit of bacon. That way you can say you did your job, but also we won't sin that much. We won't be that far away from being faithful. Let's just compromise here, right? It seems that that could be the conversation. Saving this guy's head, like he could die for this. Daniel has to be taking that into account when he's making these decisions. It seems like he could compromise to spare this guy's life. But he doesn't do that, of course. He, he stands firm. There's no compromise here. It says he's resolved to not be defiled by these things. Integrity is far more significant than I think we realize. Taking, taking into our account, living life on mission in this culture, how much do we actually value our integrity? It's scary to me how easily we can blur the line between contextualization and conformity. How, how far are we willing to go? Where is the line even if we begin to look more and more like the culture? We're desperate for them to know our Savior. We're desperate, them, desperate for them to worship the true God. Where do we draw the line then? Where do we say, I won't go any further? Daniel's saying, look, call me whatever name you want to call me. Teach me whatever you want to teach me. But there's a clear line drawn. At some point he said, my standards are here. I'm not going to go beneath them. So when we consider ourselves trying to reach a culture that's far from God and we look exactly like them in every way, there's some questions to be asked. And I think we're, we're swayed to, to, to draw away from those things because we don't want to come across as legalistic. We don't want to feel like we're giving into legalism and following these rules. And so we'll just brush it off as party pooping and we're not going to be a part of that. But it seems like integrity is important. Right? It seems like the way we live our lives, how we appear, is important. Now, if we get that backwards, if we think the way we live our lives earns something for us in the sight of God, then certainly it's legalism. But if we've truly been changed by the work of the Holy Spirit because of the gospel of Jesus Christ to honor the Most High God with all of life, then maybe we should take our standards more seriously. More than uncompromising integrity, we should have uncommon standards. We should be distinct enough that people would know that's weird. That's not like everyone else I know that calls himself a Christian. Or that's not like the culture. We see that here with Daniel. He's not even drinking the wine. Now, unless he took a Nazarite vow, he's free to drink wine. Perhaps, he, perhaps it's been sacrificed to the idols, but if that were the case, so were the vegetables he's asking for. So, 
it seems that he would be allowed to drink this wine. It seems, there's nothing clear here, but it seems like he doesn't have to have that standard vegetables and wine only. I mean, vegetables and water only. It's a high standard. And it shows us a desire to be above and beyond any expectations of anyone. And it shows he has faith that his God will not only sustain him, but make him stronger and better than those who are indulging in the Babylonian feasts. So in every way, it seems like, quote, he's missing out. But in fact, he gets everything and more because he's faithful to who he knows he should be under the Most High God. Now, this, this resolve that he has is, is to not conform to the ways, but he doesn't, he doesn't ruin relationship. He's not, he's not pushing them away. So we'll talk about how exactly he approached this in a little bit. But let's, let's by, uh, by seeing their wise decision to refuse to be hindered by any ability to be faithful to God. They're refusing to give up anything that would say, my God is above your God, my King's above your King. They're, demanding, or they're, they're not demanding or rebelling without any request. They are seeing it would damage the image. It would damage the witness. It would damage who they are before these people. Conforming is not going to happen because it means abandoning their faith. It means abandoning their God and the resolve to be faithful. And so what exactly is the benefit of all of this? It's an important question. Because remember last week we talked about it's not about following the example of Daniel primarily. So what is the benefit to all of this? What is God accomplishing? Not what is Daniel accomplishing? Jeremiah helps us out. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take, take wives and have sons and daughters, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into, the, into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. God intends to bless Babylon. I'm going to repeat this because it's ridiculous. God intends to bless Babylon. This is Babylon. The city known for itself. It wants the best of the best. It wants to make a name so that everyone will know this is Babylon. It wants the best produce. It wants the best animals. It wants the best people. It wants to overtake the world and sit itself on top. This is where the Tower of Babel was built. This is the, the place that you hear about in, in history that sat on top of the world for being wealthy and prosperous and known for being great. This is Babylon, the, the, the nation that has attacked and hated God's people because it hates God. And God wants to bless them. Okay, this, they're like Texas, right? Everything's bigger and better in Texas. So like the, like the nation of Texas, Babylon wants to be better than the rest. And God wants to bless them. It's similar to how Jonah was sent to the Syrians in Nineveh. God had mercy on the Assyrians and it made Jonah angry. 
Daniel demonstrating for us another side of this God. God intends, at least for a season, to offer prosperity to those who would ultimately be under His wrath. In order for His people, or in order for this to happen, His people must be in this land. They must seek to bless it. They must pray for it. Yet, they must remain set apart, worshiping only the Most High God. So, as they remain faithful to God, they will find that they flourish in, in, they, in this foreign land. They have wives and, and kids, and their kids have wives and kids, and, and they grow to somehow honor God, but also bless Babylon. And we know that God exalts them in, in this way, as we see in the life of Daniel in particular. But this exaltation doesn't come as something, some sort of reward for being obedient. This exaltation, as it does in all the Scripture, comes with, to the humble. It doesn't come to the proud. They aren't just trying to be difficult by refusing the king's food. They aren't trying to put themselves above as if they're better, looking down on all the Babylon's and their pagan feasts and eating idol worshiping food and pork and whatever else. They're not, they're not putting, putting themselves in a position of exaltation. They are being humble. And we see that in how Daniel goes about this. He doesn't just rebel, he requests permission. He asks with a humble heart, with respect, with honor to God and honor to people. He's not being holier than thou. He's saying, Look, I can't defile myself in this way. Give me vegetables. Give me water. And, and even when the chief eunuch is nervous about this, he, Daniel then goes to the servant beneath him and is like, look, let's team up on this. Okay, have each other's back. Just give me vegetables. You take, take this on. I don't, wanna, I don't want my friend to lose his head, so you take this on, servant. Give me just vegetables. And let's, let's make a test of it. Ten days. Just give me ten. Like he's being merciful. He's 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 being like he's willing to barter in order to 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 stay true to who his God is. He's he's being not demanding. He's, do you do you sense the difference here? He could have just said, "No, I'm not doing that. Kill me." That's not the story here. He's working with them. He's he's working for their good. Even like let's see how this plays out. Let me show you. My God is most high, better than all the gods of this land. My God, my King is the King of all kings. He's better than anything your King could offer me. What He has for me, I value more than anything your King could give me. I'm not going to submit to this system. I'm not going to assimilate into your culture because I belong to the most high God. Why would I give that up? But you don't believe me, so let's just test this out. So when we examine our lives in this foreign land, and be careful about making these comparisons because we're not by any means under the persecution that many believers in the world are under, but certainly we're foreigners to this land. As we consider that, are we able to proclaim the exclusive objective truth of the gospel and live our lives accordingly in a way that also displays a humble heart? Are we able to say Christ is better, better than anything this world has to offer? The systems of truth found in Scripture are better than any system you would claim is true in this culture. Are we able to do that for the good of this land with a humble heart? I think most often the answer to that question is no. That's why Christians have this lovely tag, intolerant. 
Now certainly the gospel is offensive and it's going to offend some and we're going to be called intolerant for the gospel. But I think the case is more often we're called intolerant for our pride. For demanding you do things our way because we know what's best. Making it about us when it should be about God. If instead we would beg people to turn to our God because He's most high. To turn to our King because He's King of all kings. To see how He satisfies If we would show them their way of doing things isn't wrong because I say so. It's wrong because it's empty. The well you're searching for water in is dry. Be satisfied in Christ. Find the living water in Christ. Find the bread of life in Christ. If we would beg people with humble hearts to come to our Savior to find the sustenance they desire to find in the world, then we could could look more like these people who we should be with strong integrity with uncompromising standards, willing to sacrifice anything but our integrity. Another question we could ask is whether or not we pray for the welfare of a pagan nation. Do we seek to bless the lost people of this world in the way God would have them be blessed as we're exiles in this land to the glory of God? Do we want to put on display the grace of God Or do we want to exclude the culture? Do we desire more for the world to think we're awesome or for them to see how awesome our God is? It is in part uh, God's plan to bless Babylon, but I think more to the point, His plan is to bless His people for eternity. And so if we look back in Jeremiah, we can see in chapter 24, uh, this good plan that he has. He gives Jeremiah a vision of some figs and there's good figs and there's bad figs and and then he explains it to them starting in verse 4 of chapter 24. The word of the Lord came to me. This is Jeremiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Like these good figs, so I I regard as good the exiles from Judah I sent away into the place, the land of the Chaldeans. I will keep my eye on them for their good. And I will return them to this land. I will build them up and not demolish them. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me. That I am the Lord. They will be my people. And I will be their God. Because they will return to me with all their heart. It's a beautiful plan to discipline His children. That they would see all of them belongs to the one true God. And not to these idols they've worshipped throughout their history. And then in chapter 29 of Jeremiah, back in chapter 29, we see this very common verse was written to this in particular, this particular people in exile. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. You will seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your, your fortunes and to gather, from, or gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And God goes on in chapters 30, 31, 32, 33 to talk of the hope He has for His people. The restoration that is to come. The turning 
their mourning into joy. The establishing of a new covenant, a better covenant, a covenant that will be written on their hearts. This kingdom that will last for eternity. There's great hope to come. Only now they're in exile. But he has a plan. For their good, this is happening. That they would love him and return to him with all of themselves. A savior will come. So don't confuse this with the prosperity gospel as this, this, this passage is often made into. This isn't saying, if you are faithful, if you have integrity, if you obey me, then I'm going to make you rich. It uses the words, restore your fortune. But this isn't about that. Because with Daniel and, and his three friends and with the church today, we see most clearly their willingness to give up everything. In order to see God worshipped. We, we see that it's most clearly not a material thing. He gives up the king's food. He gives up the king's wine. He's willing to sacrifice those things. So that he could continue to worship his king. Because in his king he finds the riches. In his king's, his king's love he finds the satisfaction. In worshipping the most high God alone. The fortune is returned to him. In exile, he gets everything he didn't have while he was in the promised land. Because he has his king. It's the opposite of the prosperity gospel. That we would give up everything this world has to offer. That we would take on sickness and death and exile and persecution. That we would take on sacrifice of worldly things in order to have Jesus, because it's about Jesus. If you've gone after Jesus for the stuff he has to give you, then you're worshiping King Nebuchadnezzar. You're not worshiping the King of Kings. This is far greater than Babylon. This is a kingdom that lasts for eternity. And while his people are in exile, we see he blesses them. And they live faithful lives because of the grace of God, not because of anything in them. And they don't compromise or conform to the ways of the Chaldeans because of the grace of God. And as a result, we see at the end of Daniel chapter 1, verse 19, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And it says, it goes on in 21, Daniel was there in that position until Cyrus, until, until Babylonians no longer ruled, the Persians did. Daniel was there. Because God is faithful. Remember I told you last week that we're going to have to ask constantly this question of belief. So God is sovereign over captors and persecutors and kingdoms and governments of the world. But do we believe that? Our God is supreme above all things this world has to offer. But do we believe that? Christ satisfies more than anything this world would tempt to satisfy you with. But do we believe it? Do we cling to it? Are we willing to set high standards and sacrifice the indulgences of the world in order to be satisfied in Christ alone. Not, not to gain the satisfaction, but to demonstrate He satisfies. 
For His purposes, He has placed us here in this century, in this land, as exiles. Because this, we're strangers to this land. For His purposes, to bless this land for our good and for the good of this world. God is at work in us and through us, putting on display His glory for the world to see. The church is the body of Christ. To bring hope to the hopeless as Christ brought hope. And God is sovereign over it all. And so while here, it, we have to ask, is it possible to bless the nation? Is it possible to show the power and goodness of our King and continue to take on the ways of the world? Continue to conform to the ways of the world? I would think not. And we can see so clearly that God will be faithful to His people, even in exile. But also we must see clearly and be encouraged to remain faithful even in exile. He's put our leaders in authority over us. So that's the government. That's world powers. That's your parents. That's your bosses at work. He's put them in authority over us. But we can trust, even if we can't trust them, we can trust our Father is faithful to be for our good and, and, and give us all that we need, just as He gives them in, in Daniel chapter 1, all that they need to stand firm with integrity for the good of the land and for the sake of the lost, to the glory of God and for the good of His people. But how do we do all of this? Well, the story of God actively providing for His people points to the greatest provision of all. The story of God giving up His people to the enemy points to He Himself giving His only begotten Son to the enemy. Only for Christ, the true and better Daniel, who was faithful in every way, the only innocent one to ever live, He took on great sufferings, great loss, and was brutally murdered for our sake. He's faithful. God is faithful to provide a way and do whatever it takes to save us. It may not be comfortable. It may not be what we like. But He does whatever it takes to save us. And we're given eternal life in Christ alone. And so here we are still out of Eden. Exiles of God, the church in this foreign land. And as we read to start our worship gathering, 1 Peter chapter 2. God's chosen people. We can be sure He is going to be faithful always, even when we're not. But we can encourage and equip one another to be faithful to Him. Starting in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God to the, on the day of visitation. This is our task, to honor God in all of life because we have Christ and we can do that. To, to worship God in all of life because He has given Himself freeing us to do that. To not become slaves to the, the systems of the world. To not conform to the culture. 
but to stand firm with integrity, to set higher standards than you may even find necessary so that we can be above reproach in order to put on display a God who is better than anything the world has to offer. And then know you will find everything you need and every sacrifice you make is truly no sacrifice at all because Christ is better. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for Your Word and for Christ as our Savior. I pray that we would not indulge ourselves in in the King's meat, but that we would indulge ourselves in Christ. That we would pursue joy, that we would pursue satisfaction above everything else in Christ. That we would see these cravings, these desires You've given us to long for satisfaction belongs there but it's only found in Christ and so whatever demands the world may put on us as exiles here I pray that we would worship you above all else in all of life seeing that you are the most high God that you are king above all kings and that as we put on display this deep love for one another and satisfaction in Christ the world would see that Jesus is better that we would be made strong that we may appear weak in our humility, we would, we would be made strong in Christ, so much so, so that even the kings of the world would honor You. I pray that You would continue to work in our hearts, that You would work in us and through us as we desire to be a people on this mission for Your glory. Help us not just to claim to make disciples or desire to make disciples, but that we would live life making disciples of Christ Motivated by how much we enjoy Christ. As we sing songs of praise, as we give to you, as we take communion, God, be worshipped by us in our hearts. And let that be on display for all to see. As one body, Christ is our head. We praise you as King. In Jesus' name. Amen.